Welcome back to the Mark Claire Show. My guest today wears many hats. He is the founder of the Canadian Patriot Review and the Rising Tide Foundation, the author of the Untold History of Canada series, and he is the producer of a new documentary series entitled The Hidden Hand Behind UFOs. I'm very pleased to welcome Matthew Errett. Matt, welcome to my show. And glad to be with you. Well, Matt, uh, today we're going to kind of dive into what on the surface may seem like two somewhat different topics, because I originally wanted to bring you on to discuss Darwinian evolution, something that mm. when I brought up on a live stream as having some skepticism, of, I, I've never received so many, not vitriolic, but so many kind of, I love your show, but type comments, but you're nuts about, about saying that thing. So I want to talk about that, but um, the seemingly other topic about UFOs that you've done this documentary on, when you kind of zoom out, as we'll discuss, there is somewhat of a common thread there. So um, before we dive into all that, I just want to get to know you a little bit better. So take me from wherever it makes the most sense. How did you first take interest in politics, history, and everything that you look into? Well, it's a, a great broad uh, starting point. Um, I, I myself uh, had no real political identity to speak of or intellectual identity until uh, I was a bit of a late bloomer, I guess. Um, wasn't that much of a book reader for fun type personality type. You know, I... Uh, I did like graphic novels when I was a teenager and maybe a few comic books of other sorts. But otherwise, um, it, I, I think I, I really had to be slapped down with um, a lot of painful truths uh, before I started taking my mind more seriously. Um, and that was in regards to a, a documentary on 9-11 that I, I was uh, assigned to work on, you know, in, in university um, or it was part of a, an assignment that I, I selected for myself and a, a group of other students and doing a little bit of research, you know, it didn't take long to come across certain arguments that made a pretty persuasive case that uh, we, everything we were told about the official narrative was a giant fraud. And, and so obviously the, the, the curious mind begins to explore the, the bigger questions of, well, if something like that could be carried out by something, um, what is that thing that, and how did it take control of what I thought of as a democratic government that looked out for me? I, I mean, I was that naive. Um, so, you know, it doesn't, there weren't too many steps between that moment, which comes with a certain amount of personal crisis. I think everyone who has been through a similar set of experiences will feel a certain trauma and necessarily, and it's a question of how do you process that and deal with that? Um, so I, I chose to... Do you mean the trauma of just getting over the fact, kind of accepting the fact that there is some certain kind of hidden evil in the world that operates in ways that we just are not brought up to believe, typically? Yeah, you wouldn't think... You'd think that that sort of thing is for Hollywood films to entertain you with supervillains behind the scenes running James Bond scenarios and, you know, to, to, to realize that, no, there is this much darker uh, factor to our collective uh, history that is not treated in our in our textbooks i mean a lot of this this uh the appreciation of oligarchism the, is, is made very obscured by design so that we don't understand how our history has been shaped because all of history has been shaped by conspiracies for the good or for the bad you know it's not that all conspiracies are intrinsically out to enslave and kill us it, the worst ones are but it just works out that way <laughs> Oftentimes that's, <laughs> so, but, but uh, inversely too like if you think about well what went into the uh, the creation of a lot of the best uh, upshifts of human civilization's emancipation from um, feudalism and from enslavement into higher states of accessing literacy and knowledge and higher quality of life. Did that happen because elite, you know, an elite self-professed masterclass just gave us liberties just because they were bored with us being like uh, servile slaves? No, it, it, if you actually investigate it, these moments happen through 
a, a fight. There's always a fight to do that. And so things like the golden renaissance that saw a huge explosion of, of human life on the earth. And in terms of not just quantity, but also quality that accompanied revolutions in medical uh, discoveries, astronomy, architectural, be beautiful, uh, artistic and musical uh, innovations came out of that, that process. All of, all of it was, was tied together. It wasn't just because there was like all of a sudden a collective demand on the market uh, from people who were like just in the dark age, living it like, you know, until 32 years of age on average, uh, high infant mortality. And they were just like, oh, we kind of now have a demand for beauty and, and longevity. It's like, no, that, that happened because there were certain people who took leadership, uh, leadership responsibilities and organized in a conspiratorial way with like-minded people who had a different sense that wasn't um, based upon an oligarchist worldview that put into motion processes that uh, are, allowed for goodness to, to emerge which then had to be subverted and undermined and corrupted from within and from without. And so there's always this, this fight between different paradigms throughout all, all of history um, about the nature of mankind, the, na the nature of the universe, natural law, what, it, what, what is the essence of these things. And, uh, and so I, I, I guess for myself, waking up, um, at first I was very depressed after my doing a lot of research over a couple of years and getting a better sense of, like a higher definition sense of, how screwed we are, you know, and mapping out different Masonic, you know, factors in history and bankers, dictatorships and multi-gen. So I was getting pretty good at that. But ultimately, I, I was finding myself depressed because when I would try to communicate what my, my research to others, my, my friend circle or others, um, if I, if I, I was getting one of two effects, either people would think I was crazy as sin and, uh, that was alienating. Or if I was successful, um, and I was getting better at being successful at, at persuading people that, uh, that there was something else going on. I, I was just like lowering their energy. Like I was just, mm, yeah. I, I couldn't, I didn't have any sense of hope. So I was just like, okay, at a certain point, maybe it's just better to be an ignorant slave who's happy. Maybe that's really it. And so I, I shut up for a while and I, I just vowed like I, a vow of political uh, silence uh, for a for a sustained period, and I made a point to myself that unless I could come across something that could persuade me that there is some hope, I will not talk about this because I'm I'm it's useless to me and, and to others. Um, and so for me, I um, on a smoke break, I don't smoke anymore, but I was smoking a lot. Um, I encountered a a table, um, a political table with Larouche. Um, LaRouche members from the Lyndon LaRouche Association. And there was a small outlet in Canada, maybe 12 people or so. And, you know, I was bored and they had some provocative signage. People who, I don't know, have you ever seen a, a LaRouche? I have, I have yeah. run into a few in my day. Okay, yeah. And, you know, I I'd encountered them over the years a couple of times and had little conversations, didn't go well. And then this particular time, though, I, I was in a different place and things were, I was ready to receive conversation that I wasn't prior to. And so some of the signage regarding stop the depopulation agenda spoke to me or stop World War II or uh, World War III. And it spoke to me. I was like, okay, I can, I can have a conversation about this. And we did. And, and I didn't, I wasn't overly impressed with the conversation, but I was impressed with the fact that it, I didn't, that there were people who were doing something that I wasn't doing. Like they were acknowledging certain disturbing facts of life that I also knew existed, 
depopulation agenda, conspiratorial, you know. Uh, they weren't just locked in their room stressing over it. They were trying to achieve some sort of solution. Yeah, exactly. And they'd been around for a long time. And so I thought of myself as an informed person. And I never heard of this Lyndon LaRouche old guy. He's, he's passed away now. But I, I was fascinated that this has been around since the late 60s. Um, and I, and has been pushing for policies that were viable internationally. And I was like, okay, you're, you're proactive, you're doing something. So I, I began to investigate that. And after a few months of, of inquiry, I was like, okay, I can, I can volunteer. I can, I can put my, myself behind this. So I, I did that for about 10 years as a, as a volunteer, increasingly full-time. And I, I think that that was a big part of my, my growth, my, my growth dynamic benefited, I think, a lot by giving myself, taking myself out of my comfort zone, my comfortable, or not, at least my, not comfortable, but my reliable cycles of being in the job market, uh, being with all of my, you know, being stuck in the, in the machinery. I, it's, it's a sort of comfort blanket in a sense. And by pulling myself out of that and throwing myself into a place where I, I was a full-time volunteer in a very, um, you know, doing something very unconventional, like political organizing, which involved a lot of, the attractive thing for me was that there was a, a high focus on, um, on study, on, uh, with, on reading original material of great minds who made discoveries. That was something that LaRouche, I really uh, give him thumbs up on putting this emphasis on, on research, especially for the younger members. He was like, spend all of, you know, he, he had this curriculum set up where the idea was to read the writings of people like Johannes Kepler or Leibniz or people who made giant discoveries into the universe and wrote their thoughts down and then did things in, in the time that they lived. Don't read about them from experts who say that they know what they were. Don't go to, you know, don't do that. Just read their writings. And sure enough, the more you do that, you start replicating their, their mental process of how the laws of planetary motion were discovered in Kepler's mind or how the infinitesimal calculus, the Leibniz tells you what physical experiments you can conduct to depth to reproduce the discovery you're in your own mind he wants that to happen and so does max Planck. so you can you can in an imperfect way replicate the method instead of just memorizing formula and know the spirit of how these great discoveries happen and you start noticing that there's the they're all tapping in into the same well and that i think gave me a political edge when i began to carry out more of my original investigations in around 2012 because I, I was in Canada um, as a Canadian activist it, with a U.S. organization. It's a U.S.-run organization, but I'm in Canada. So we're using, with maybe, again, 10 or 12 other members, it wasn't a very big thing. But we're going into parliaments. We're, we're organizing citizens. We're going into embassies, uh, giving briefings, carrying out, you know, trying to persuade people that certain gigantic policies need to happen. That's, and, and the problem was we weren't, we, we weren't coming at it it was kind of like a copy paste. You're in, in, in Canada, but you're using a narrative that is customized for a U.S. environment. And so we're telling Canadians that they have to impeach Dick Cheney, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's detaching after a while. And I'm like, well, why are we customizing this for our own environment and, and mapping out the terrain here? And so that feeling of frustration was shared by a few other uh, younger members. And we began, an, uh, we assigned ourselves the mission, uh, the mission of trying to map out uh, what is this Canadian history? Why are we a monarchy? What is the Privy Council? What is the, like, we're, we're telling people the British Empire still runs the world. That's part of the, part of the line. And it's true. That's part like, of the LaRouchian uh, 
Part of the LaRouchian yeah. uh, analysis right. is that the British Empire never disappeared. It continued. It was rebranded, but continued um, after World War II. And uh, part of the U.S. problem is the fact that the fifth colonists inside of the U.S. that were, were there since the 1776 period never disappeared. They, they were always loyal to the British East India Company, City of London, Hellfire Club, old family systems of Europe and the black nobility. That's part of the thing. But it's like at the same time, I, I was persuaded that that's true. And I still am. But I but nobody did the work to map out. Well, what the hell does that mean for Canada? We're still a British monarchy. Um, how does that shape our understanding of our own of our own story? And so what are all of these unelected oper operations um, act like the lieutenant governors, the, the, the governor general who is the official head of our government? What is the power of the Privy Council office? What, the, none of these things are, are discussed. Most Canadians don't even know about these things. And so we're like, well, let's get the history down. And so beginning in 2012, I began publishing um, some of that research we were pulling together. And it was really exciting because, you know, we're just digging up now. We're, 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 I, I found it useful that the scientific work we had, had been doing for a few years on the, 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 the work on Kepler's discoveries, Leibniz's discoveries, which was a lot of work on Plato, the platonic dialogues that were part of the, the curriculum that I'd been, and I, again, I joined in 2006. So I, I had found that it, it came in very handy at, um, breaking or at least investigating fallacious models of our history. Cause there's a lot of acceptable narratives models that are given to Canadians and, and everybody has their about their own history. So where are the fallacies when pressed onto reality? And so, um, that became very useful at reconstructing something that was more truthful based upon the, the acknowledgement that there have been these hereditary oligarchist oligarchical systems that have used certain techniques of controlling population perceptions. um, and, uh, and a lot of the better, these wonderful stories began to emerge. So I, I was originally provoked by the question of, well, how did progress happen in Canada if this thing always wants to keep us in a feudal state of underdevelopment and population control? How did these bursts of progress happen? And so by looking at some of these things, I started pulling together certain heroic figures that I knew nothing about in Canada who fought against this, um, this beast in the... In the 19th century, people who were working with Abraham Lincoln, that I, again, I knew nothing about them. But they, when you start digging into this, you're like, wow, there's a whole pro-Lincoln faction it, you, it, with political power fighting uh, in Canada to make Canada an independent country based on technological progress, development, national banking, all this stuff that were purged. They were undermined. Um, and then there's similar stories over the years. Uh, during the eight, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, incredible things in the provinces. So anyway, that, that became a series of books that I began publishing with the Canadian Patriot Review. Um, it made a lot of conflict happen too with some of the, a lot of the members of the LaRouche organization were very old, kind of set in their ways, didn't really like the idea that, you know, you're challenging comfortable um, narratives that uh, people got used to. Um, so there was a, a sort of dissonance that began to set in because I'm myself and some that's of the younger weird people are coming from them because I mean, that's sort of, I mean, the LaRouchian narrative is challenging, is itself challenging certain narratives. 
Yeah, well, I think it's part of the human condition. You know, there's there's uh, beautiful, good, like, ideas have, um, can be really wonderful. But ideas also require personalities in the temporal world to put them, to give them uh, momentum, right? And, and these personalities are never perfect. And sometimes, I mean, it's human psychology, you know, we tend to fall into traps of getting too comfortable with our perceptions, with our desire of what things should be. And we get a little bit too rigid in our, in our neural pathways. So eh, it's not to undermine, it's like the American constitution, right? It's a beautiful constitution. It's a beautiful set of ideas of the declaration of independence, but more often than not, it hasn't lived up to those very high ideals throughout the 250 years that it's been around doesn't mean the ideals are wrong. It's just, you know, human beings being human. We, <laughs> we can lie to ourselves and, and self-deceive and all sorts of things. Right. So that was my thing. And at a certain point, uh, the personalities I had to deal with um, were a little bit too, I found, stifling. So we had to part ways. But I, but I still found great use and I'm thankful for that experience. And, you know, as, as an independent analyst and, and journalist, I, I've been working with my wife to try to create dynamics that could ex give people more of an opportunity to make discoveries and, 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 you know, put this into work in their own lives. Well, I mean, on the subject of, of people being vested and, and wedded to certain narratives, I mean, that just makes me think of just mentioning my criticism of Darwinian evolution and all, all these comments mm. I, I suddenly got because it just goes against what's an assumed narrative for so many people. So when did you first start sort of running up against that narrative and, and digging into its actual origins, which are not really all that old? I guess... There's, there's two phases of this. I guess the first one, before I met the LaRouche organization, but after I, I had started, uh, ex, you know, exploring, as I mentioned to you, my 9-11 my discoveries were a big, like, entry point for my uh, breaking down of a lot of my comfort zone narratives in 2004. So there's a two-year period of just, like, exploration um, with, a, with no sense of solution. But part of that involved me going down a lot of rabbit holes. Some of them took me down the, the alien thing where I was like, okay, at a certain point, you're not believing anything. So I'm like now just really open. I've, I'm reading David Icke. I'm reading all sorts of things that um, is making me convinced that I'm a really original thinker because I've all of a sudden, you know, I'm getting high and coming up with great ideas that human beings emerged as test tube I just watched a seven-hour David Icke video and I am enlightened. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I, and I, you know, you, th you think that this stuff is all coming from you, but you're like, no, in hindsight, I know that it was, you know, I'm, I'm reading the books, I'm watching the videos, I'm my subconscious is being, I'm, I'm reading Zachariah Sitchin, and I'm doing, so I, I know that my subconscious is being influenced. And so, you know, the, I, the, this wasn't really just from me, obviously. And, and so it wasn't the most original set of insights, but I was committed to the idea that, okay, Darwin is a, Darwin can't explain certain things about the, um, or the Darwinian method of, of analysis doesn't allow for the explanation of the non-appearance, like the, the fact that we don't seem to find gradualism in fossil records. We tend to find these discontinuous leaps in, in fossils, both human, but also other things. We also seem to find in the empirical evidence, these, that whole systems of biosystems uh, are, go through... Um, um, changes in a discontinuous fashion all as systems more than just individual entities within a system changing 
Um, so there's these things like whole systems are changing as systems. There's no, no gradualism that we seem to be finding. Um, there does seem to be a sort of directedness in evolution. It doesn't seem to be too random that we went from like single cell amoeba, amoeba to, uh, presently speaking over like technology using light speed and, 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 and you know, <laughs> language. Mm-hmm. So there does seem to be things that the popular Darwinian mechanisms don't, uh, explain away very well so for me i was like well thus aliens duh of course (laughs) but then of course i didn't i I didn't want to deal with the the next paradox that would that did emerge that i was trying to avoid which was well then what created the aliens under what you know they they would be pretty cognitive (laughs) and uh what process of evolution created that was it another older alien species that created them? And if if so, what created that alien and then species? Then you're just going so back you're going and back to the to finally find the final alien at some point. And I guess that's just at God then. <laughs> and then that's God. Right. At the end. <laughs> right. So here we are. <laughs> yeah. So that was my that was my first at least critical. It was useful in the sense that at least it got me critical about some of the popular narratives narratives of Darwinism, but but it still didn't quite um solve all the problems but i i think that it was again going back to um my studies the 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 work i did researching um science and science history with larouche was useful because larouche uh was coming at things from a physical economy standpoint and and he he wrote a book called um so you wish to learn all about economics and it's a really useful book written in 1984 and the first couple of chapters goes through um, the science of physical economy, which he didn't invent. He's like, look, I didn't invent this. It's that there's already been this fight for centuries around um, looking for the laws shaping human civilization and what are the principles animating those laws. And he, point, he pointed back to Leibniz. And, and sure enough, you could read the, the reference papers by Leibniz from the 17th century. Um, and the earlier Cameralist school that emerged out of the Renaissance of thinkers that were trying to find, okay, well, if you think about it, like any system, uh, a planetary system has its laws that govern its its cycles, right? It happens to be gravitational, but then the biosphere has carbon cycles, um, all sorts of cycles that are organized by certain discoverable laws that maintain certain dynamic equilibrium, but also change because they're not just always the same. There's also an evolution of biospheric systems in time to, to greater complexity, greater division of labor. So with human systems, it's a little bit more complicated because we have free will and creative spontaneity, which is not as, it's not expressed in the same way as animals, you know, that are happy. bees are happy being bees. They don't think about the hexagon in school that learn the, the geometry of the hexagon. They just do it and they build hexagonal structures in their in their honeycombs and that's that's great and they've but never not, studied com- geometry or any of this stuff no they just they just do it and, and yeah and, and like water just water molecules just form that way when when you know when they get cold and, and they become these beautiful little hexagonal you know uh, uh, snowflakes and that's great but they don't choose to they couldn't choose to be today i want to wake up and become a, an octagon or a pentagon it's they don't you know human beings can choose to do other than our nature uh, based on will, based on on folly, on wisdom. So there's all these dynamics that are that are additional with the human species. But we still have, you know, the need for water, clothing to keep us warm. I live in Canada. We'd be dead if I didn't have some some form of heating system, clothing system, right? So you got these like physical physical systems. Um, there's eight billion of us right now. Like 
these these laws of production, um, transformation of raw materials, the transportation of those materials to consumer centers, the um, the need to overcome the limits that are caused by every moment when we are we always have relationships with raw materials based on our knowledge, which is always going to be limited and whatever technological level we're at. So there's always going to be limits caused by the, what we don't know, right? Our, our ignorance of <laughs> undiscovered things will cause necessary constraints of what we could potentially do or how many people we could potentially support. But if we are, um, encouraging of new discoveries and, and a sort of creative flexibility and we're not so rigid in our in our systems and our desire to control or monopolize things then we're able to overcome those limits to growth by leaping over them and introducing new discoveries like electricity or whatever's coming online right but that requires a lot of confidence in the unknown and the, and the also the confidence in the people and the masses to be able to generate from within themselves um good judgment creative brilliance so, you know, like, why, why don't we have more, you know, Einsteinian or, you know, like, wh why aren't there more Mozarts and, and Max Planck's coming out of Uganda and you Niger? Stop yourself you know? at Einstein there for a minute. <laughs> like, that might be its own little side narrative. <laughs> yeah, Depending I, on who you talk I, have, to. I have a warm spot for Einstein, but I, but also I wouldn't, I think there's better examples. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, he, he had some blind spots, but all that to say, um, yeah, like we could have a lot more brilliant minds, but the problem is the system of empire creates conditions whereby people don't access their potentials and they're they're living either in a state of exploitation in constant war or in the case of like us decadence where we're too busy just feeding our ever-growing needs to be consumers as we were told that that's what it is to be a good a good citizen in the 70s is to just go to the mall and and be a good engine of the of the consumer society and we forgot that, no, to be a consumer society, it needs to be justified by being a productive society first. So you have to produce to, ju to justify your consumption. You can't just be a consumer. And we, we, we drank the Kool-Aid. So all that to say, that's where I think my, my sensitivity to um, uh, the Darwinian, say I didn't forget the question. So the, the Darwinian uh, flaw um, was given more, there, more meat was put on the bones by, by appreciating the, the fight over physical economic systems over the centuries of which LaRouche was more, just simply a contemporary, he advanced it, but he wasn't the creator of the science of physical economy. Um, and looking, looking at the political conspiratorial agencies, especially in the 19th century, that were created to destroy the political emergence of sovereign nation states working and cooperating to get together, adopting the, the system that Lincoln had uh, brought online during his short time in office. The, what, what I came to discover was actually known very well in the 19th century. It's, it's almost been written out of our, our science and, and economic textbooks is the American system of political economy. And, um, that's what Lincoln brought online with the, the greenback system, the, the national banking structure that he, he brought in, the protective tariff, the idea that value is not just the consequence of desires to satisfy pleasure, as is presumed by the British school of Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and Ricardo and, and Malthus. It's not that at all. The idea was very clear 
and you could read the writings of any of the, the advocates of this system coming from the America or their, their um, collaborators in Germany and Russia and in Asia at the time in the 19th century, it's that it's from the power of increasing the productive potentials that the, the, the idea of value is infused. And so we have money, private, private enterprise is, is wonderfully cherished, but it's not because people want things that the, that the money has the value. It's because the system as a whole is increasing its powers of productivity, um, which, which is something that that's much deeper than it, than it, than it might appear as I just speak it. And this was again, spreading internationally in the wake of the civil war. And because I'm looking at this stuff now from an, from a conspiratorial angle, I'm appreciating that you have the British East India company, the city of London. I'm, I'm appreciating the mapping of the oligarchic agencies within America working to break America up and undo the revolution as a, as a, as an example at that time. So I'm, I'm appreciating this. I'm also appreciating now the Canadian angle to the whole story that I didn't know about prior to, um, this whole investigation began. And I'm also noticing that there's a lot of scientists who are, um, working internationally to explain the new appearance or the new dis discoveries in the fossil records that imply that that the world wasn't created 6,000 years ago. And it wasn't just Darwin versus the, the church absolutists, right, as right. we've been told it was. It's, there was this whole other network of real scientists like uh, Georges Cuvier and uh, Lamarck and uh, James Dwight Dana and Benjamin Silliman from America, these American uh, naturalists who are all addressing evolution, but doing it in a way that, that allowed for creative leaps, design, uh, a harmony of parts of the individual uh, uh, species that are that you're investigating, as well as the system of of multiple species at the same time, a harmony of of different things. So harmony, directionality, design, purposefulness were all part of a scientific analysis of non-Darwinian approaches to evolution that were all washed out, as people were told by Thomas Huxley a major political controller and handler of Darwin, his bulldog, who was running this new think tank in Britain out of the Royal Society called the X Club, that no, you have to pick a side. You could either be a church absolutist who believes in the creationist story, 6,000 years, or or you could be a scientifically respectable Darwinian, but you, there's nothing else, no more nuance. Mm. Both sides ultimately were fraudulent, but uh, but you wouldn't know that in, in hindsight because we're not told about all these other other scientists and, and they're, they're much more not, I think, healthy methods of analysis. Well, that, so that, that's that was exactly how it thing. is framed today. I mean, if you criticize evolution, as I saw in any way, everyone jumps to, oh, you believe in the 6,000 year, and maybe I do, I don't know, but I don't really know. But it, my criticism has nothing to do with any certain belief that I hold or anything that I want to, you know, any certain God I want to believe in. But I think it's Today's episode of the Mark Claire Show is sponsored by right here, Fox and Sons, foxandsons.com, my favorite coffee brand. And I don't just say that because they're sponsors of the show. I say that because I get a one pound bag shipped to my house. The proof is right here. Uh, every single month, I get my pound of Fox and Sons delivered right to my house. You should too. Of course, I don't expect you to just dive right in no idea what you're getting into. I want you to go get yourself a sample bag. Go over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. You can check out the Den Blend Dark, as is my preference, the Tanzanian Peaberry, Brazilian Honey Premp, a bunch of other flavors still to come. Uh, Steven's always mixing it up with new fresh beans. The best part about this business 
Stephen started it to not only relive his love for sharing coffee with his father, but to teach his own sons about entrepreneurship. If that doesn't give you the warm and fuzzies, I don't know what will. Just kidding. Yes, I do. This coffee will. So head over to foxandsons.com, F-O-X-N-S-O-N-S.com. Use discount code MCS to get yourself 18% off your order. You're going to be coming back for more. Trust me. Foxandsons.com, discount code MCS. Back to the show so tied into that same dialectic that has been around since Dar- Darwinianism emerged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's a complete, it's, it's important for people to realize how we've often been, been played by these false binaries. Um, there are binaries. I believe that there are opposites in reality. You know, there's good and evil and that, that's something there's light and shade, you know, but, but, uh, but there's false binaries as well. And, uh, and the, and the oligarchy, and when I say the oligarchy, I mean people might have their own idea of what that means. I'm I'm specifically talking about the the directly continuous uh, hereditary families and institutions associated with those things that are tied to um, processes that go back to ancient Rome and, and empires before that. Um, so there's a direct continuity of certain inbred families, a limited amount of them, quite a few, but a limited amount that are also propagating uh, certain hereditary properties, trusts, fondy possessions that maintain a continuity, but also are associated with a variety of, of um, um, occult rituals or an inner sort of religious doctrine for the so-called inner elite that promulgates the belief structures of that uh, oligarchist culture, which is very unnatural. It's not easy to, to maintain something that perverse so there's there's it's a complex thing in a sense but that's what I, when i say oligarchy that's what i mean yeah and in the first cre- episode of your series you kind of go through that whole line and, and sort of bring it from that the past thousands of years ago or who knows how long before that some of these the stuff was around there but and you sort of bring it forward into today where we now see those that same line is you could probably draw it right through the evolution narrative and right today into the ufo narrative that you break down in your series yeah, you, you really can. And I mean, it's not at the end of the day. The, the purpose of Darwin at the end of the day, when you look at why did Huxley want Darwin to be the dominant thing, the dominant explanation of, of life? Um, it wasn't just because they really care about biology. Um, it's, it's really that there was a whole new concept of the nature of what it means to be a human being that was being enforced, which had political um effects and part of it was the idea to replace the outdated troublesome concept of human nature that had that people mostly had believed in as enshrined in the book of genesis the idea that we're made in the image of a of a living reasonable creator um that we could participate in the process of creation as a species that that means that life is sacred um you know, the, these are these are not concepts to be taken lightly. You know, and the so the, the, these these ideas of what human beings are as a noble, divine species with attributes that make us stewards of nature, not simply another species trapped by the same cycles that define and bound uh, non-human forms of biospheric uh, life, but that we're we we have an edge, something above it. These are all things that were very troublesome to oligarchical systems of control. They, they made us un, unwieldy. For those who wanted to take that, those thoughts seriously and act upon them, um, 
it, it made things very difficult. Uh, let's just say that. And it, it made us a bit of a headache. So by able, by reducing us to just another form as Darwin's second, or I think his second major book, uh, Descent of Man, made the point that by, by reducing us to something that is like directly, a direct con, con, uh, continuous flow from, um, from apes, it, uh, it, it kind of fudged out the sacredness thing and it, it, by reducing everything to a struggle for survival in a world of diminishing returns, as Darwin himself noted that his discover or his insights, his model emerged out of his reading of Thomas Malthus, Hmm. um, which he wrote in his autobiography when he was saying, you know, I was on the beagle and looking for a, a theory by which to work. I couldn't figure it out. And I read Thomas essays, uh, Thomas Malthus's essay on, on population Malthus, by the, by the way, being the British East India company economist who found a mathematical model for population control. And on behalf of his, um, his bosses at the British East India company, he was a teacher at the British East India company's Haleybury college. So he had, a, he wasn't just a, a philosopher, just philosophizing what causes overpopulation. He had a political agenda and he came up with a mathematical model that, and he advocated the killing off of, of the excess, uh, useless eaters, the, uh, the babies that are born, that the, the state cannot support, that they could be eliminated. And he, he prescribed different, very cold hearted remedies, utilizing famines, plague, uh, starvation, war. He actually said, these are gifts that God has given us to manage the excess uh, population in, in the first edition of his um, essays on population. So this is the type of character that Darwin is reading and saying, aha, now I, had, I was given a theory by which to work by appreciating the, the struggle for, for diminishing returns in a world of scarcity. And that creates a tension out of which the idea of a randomized mutation function that he just presumed existed. He didn't even know about genetics, but he's like, I presu he presumed that there was some like random function of mutations that would generate certain uh, macro attributes biologically, bigger claw, faster, faster sprint or whatever, uh, bigger peacock feathers to allow members of whatever species to kill off the weaker or, you know, get more sex, get more food and the weaker that couldn't make, that couldn't get as lucky on the dice rolls of the, uh, the, 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 the genetic mutations would just lose out and would disappear and they would go extinct. So that the idea was always to extend that to human population. So once that could be adopted in the sort of safe scientific domain of explaining away biological systems, the idea was immediately already to then extend it back as Malthus had already done to manage global systems of humans mm. with things like eugenics, you know, advanced by Francis Galton, uh, Darwin's cousin, a very close associate of, of uh, Thomas Huxley and the X Club, as well as uh, Herbert Spencer, who had a different variation of the same thing, but one, one had a more centralized control system of the eugenics. So that was like, Galton was, okay, if, if this is a science, let's, let's, let's have a centralized agency to control the science of human breeding, Right. And, and it was always Malthusian, right? And, and I would think there's a tie in there between, oh. you know, pushing eugenics, something that would be very unpalatable, I think, if you do see life as sacred, if you do see life as having some meaning behind it. But if you're in the paradigm of, well, we're all just random chance and, you know, a bunch of molecules bounced here and there and then monkeys and here we are, maybe it's not, you know, not as, uh, you know, not as distasteful, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's what, what is a big deal if, uh, 
if you kill, I mean, if, if we're just made up of dead molecules and my, uh, my book is made up of dead molecules and there's carbon in my book and carbon in my body and carbon in my microphone, what's the difference between like burning my book and smashing my microphone or, and, and killing my neighbor with a hammer? It's all just molecules breaking. I mean, what's the moral difference, you know? So you start just blurring the lines. Of course, Darwin even says only the stupidest in his dis- descent, uh, the descent of man. He even has a little line where he's like, you know, every, every species, the, the weakest of all species die off and only human, human beings are so, so stupid that we allow the uh, weakest of our, of our race to, to procreate. Um, and he even says something even darker, like to, to not, to not be eliminated or something like that. But then he says an, another paragraph later is a disclaimer. He's like, but of course we wouldn't do what other species do by killing them because we have ethics. And so I think that Darwin is just, is in, he's just an inconsistent guy in my assessment. I don't think he's as self-aware of what he's a part of as let's say a Huxley was who he wouldn't even be trusted. They wouldn't trust Darwin to go out and argue his case in public debates. Hmm. That's why Huxley, Thomas Huxley existed because he could actually eviscerate enemies, even though Huxley admitted in his letters to, to his allies that he didn't even believe in Darwinism. He, he was an agnostic, but he also didn't believe in, in Darwin's theory because he was actually looking at all of the literature and noting that there was directionality. There were, you know, these, these things. But, he, but so why was he doing, why did he put so much of an effort into advancing and protecting the Darwinian system? It's because he was loyal to a different type of religion, but it was a religion based upon a system of, um, of empire, the maintenance of systems of control, a religion of stasis. A master-slave relationships where the slaves were, would be allowed a certain uh, perception of the world, a certain axis of a very limited spectrum of their emotional and mental uh, state. Um, and the elites would have a wider spectrum of, of, they would have their own culture that would be distinct from the masses, the, the, the culture of the slaves. And, you know, so D- Huxley and, and his, his ilk advanced this thing and, and they were working with Galton and, and Spencer and others to uh, create, as Galton later on said, a, a, new, a new religious order based upon eugenics. And Galton gave a speech um, in 1904 and he gave actually several speeches and wrote, wrote about this. And he says, I, I don't see any reason why eugenics sh- should not be the foundation of a, of a new global world religion. Um, to, and all of that's at the heart of what has been motivating, I think, the, the oligarchy over, over centuries and centuries is the idea of establishing a new system of spiritual self-controls for the masses that look a lot more like pre-Christian paganism hmm. in terms of if, if you investigate the type of mystery cults that dominated the world, the Roman Empire, the Persian, the, the Phrygian Empire, the Babylonian Empires. There was all, it was always a global system of top-down mystery cults shaped by an initiated priest class that had degrees, both a diffused degree, um, degree of initiatory experiences for the masses um, in a very hedonistic sort of set of um, rituals based on a lot of sex, a lot of orgies, a lot of things that, that involved Dionysiac sort of frenzies um, that would keep people in a state of, of thinking that that's how they're accessing the feeling of the gods. Um, and then degrees that are a little less diffused for the initiated higher class of managers and the managerial elite that were allowed to go a little bit higher, but ultimately were still dege- degenerate in their own way. And the people were, were kept, do- 
you know, at war with each other, um, at war with ourselves in a sense, incapable of changing anything about our world um, that we, we deem to be unjust or even thinking about what injustice means. So that was a system that I think has been romanticized by a lot of the oligarchs that they've been trying to revive in some way both by infiltration of Christian and Muslim and Jewish and other, other faiths around the world. So they work at, at corrupting things from within, but also destroying them from the outside at the same time. And that's a big part of the 20th century since eugenics was really brought online as the, uh, the, new, the new religion. Well, and perhaps that conversation about the new religion is what can sort of lead us in to this conversation about UFOs because mm. I, there's no doubt that the push for a... a new religion of sorts is very much tied into the disclosure of UFOs, the conversation about UFOs and a lot of your work. I mean, some of it, I gotta be honest, kind of burst my bubble a little bit. Cause you know, I grew, I grew up such a big fan of star Wars, of, of George Lucas, of Spielberg, of all that stuff. And then later got into the X files and, you know, thought my thought, of course, like fuck, I love Fox Mulder. Cause he's the one, he's the rebel. He's the one trying to disclose what the government's hiding. And at some point you, you start to actually sort of not actually believe it in real life. You still see it as fantasy, but you wed yourself to that narrative so much that when you finally start to peek behind the curtain and, and you realize, wait a minute, I thought that because I got that from Time Magazine. I got that from the Fox News Corporation. You realize all the sources are the same sources as everything else. So maybe you can tie in how this cultural push, this push that's been going on really for decades to normalize uh, UFOs, aliens, you could almost say as sort of a, a friendly feature of the universe, how that ties into this push for a new religion. Mm. Well, I guess a good starting, a jump off point on that would be H.G. Wells. I think he's an important one. He was a student actually. <laughs> Herbert George Wells, student of Thomas Huxley at the Normal School of Science in uh, in uh, London. No, not London, some other town in, but it, Britain. Um, now Huxley was under the patronage of of, of Huxley. Uh, Wells was um, noted for a talent, a, a sort of creative flexibility, and a genius. He wasn't born from a highbrow family. He was, you know, his parents were gardener. One was a gardener. One was a servant. He had a bit of a chip on his shoulder, but. Thomas Huxley was also not born from a high, a high family. Both of them noted the, the systemic fallacy or um, Achilles heel of the empire system that they devoted their lives to maintaining as high priests of that empire, which was the complacency and decadence of the hereditary class of nobles, the, black, the, the so-called black nobility, as, as some call it. But there's a sort of a, a lack of creative flexibility due to a sense of feeling of entitlement, of privilege, and security in systems of, of uh, political economic controls. And they wrote about it, especially H.G. Wells wrote about it quite a bit in his uh, Anticipations, his autobiography in 1901. And um, <clears throat> they basically noted that, look, if you want to survive, you have to be as an empire more capable of introducing new talent into the machinery. You can't just be so rigid with the, uh, the glass wall of uh, separating you from the lower classes. Um, basically saying, you know, give us, <laughs> give us a job. We'll, we'll, right. we'll, we'll do good for you. <laughs> Boss, come on. <laughs> I can and, be a good uh, elite helper guy. Come on. Yeah, you know, treat me good. I'll treat you good. <laughs> you know, these, these want me to write some slaves. stories for you. I mean, whatever you need. Yeah. And so part of this idea was, um, as, as Wells noted, um, predictive programming, the, the, the utilization of a form of, of warfare that hadn't been really exploited uh, before this moment of the 1890s in the form of uh, science fiction, 
Um, so Wells comes out running. He's working for uh, W.T. Steed, who is a, uh, a patron and collaborator of Cecil Rhodes, um, running the, uh, the Paul Mall Gazette. Also a big guy who's, who's also sponsoring Annie Besant, who goes on to head the Theosophist movement, other forms of you know occultic um, operations that are all integrated with the Fabian Society. Annie Besant becomes a leading member of the Fabian Society as well as a leader of the Theosophist movement, not a coincidence. Um, so H.G. Wells, after working for the Pall Mall Gazette, starts re- pu- uh, publishing these, these highly, highly um, promoted um, books like the, the Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man. <clears throat> and he's, he's, he's highly productive, very creative guy. And he's incorporating a lot of cutting edge science because he also gets briefings from the X Club grouping of scientists around Huxley. You know, they're all very integrated. So they're able to take sort of cutting edge science, but with a very cynical view of human nature in the future to create dystopic outcomes of mm. science being applied always for destructive purposes by stupid people. So human, human nature is always a tre- the dumbest thing ever in, in HUL stories. We are our own worst enemy, which is part of the, the oligarchical disdain for humans. They always want to convey the idea that we are something, uh, you know, the... the, uh, the you give us any toy, we're going to just destroy the whole house. Can't trust us with anything, yeah. Um, unless, and in a lot of Wells' stories, the savior that restores order is oftentimes a world government force of scientific masons like you have in uh, The World Set Free or... Um, sometimes uh, an alien. Or sometimes an alien, which gets us to, to take ourselves more seriously. But even there, we, we end up becoming still foolish by the end when the aliens die of like some germ. So it wasn't our own ingenuity that fought the aliens properly, you know? But, so, but, but the, 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 the use of... Um, the idea of flying saucers that, as far as I could tell, were first innovated by him as a threat of a foreign entity that would unite us all uh, was adopted by other Fabians like John Dewey, the educational reformer in America, who was a, a leader of the American branch of the Fabian Society, wrote for the New Republic with Walter Lippmann and others. He was, he was also giving speeches to the, the Japanese delegation uh, during World War I, saying that we need to only uh, the the idea of an invasion from Mars would would get human human beings to behave uh, appropriately. All of them were against the nation state. All of them, all of these these Fabians were for what's called social imperialism, which gave rise to you know national socialism in Germany, the the different socialisms in in Italy that gave rise to Mussolini. He was a socialist. So people don't know what this means. It's specifically Fabian socialism was the Lloyd George Roundtable Milner. They they all called themselves imperial socialists. That's what it was. It was a system of basically global one world government empire with fascist managers who would maintain state controls over our lives in different jurisdictions of the world. But the problem was people still believed in liberty, democracy, sacredness of life. These were all the family. Um, mm-hmm. These were all things that, that made us resistant cognitively to these types of remedies for all of our problems, like world government, you know, and, and reset human civilization's nature. So HULs wrote extensively about the need to create a new religion in his open conspiracy, in his new world order, the world set free. He writes a lot of stuff and he's very active. He's, he's a co-author of, of some of the, the, the core legislation that created the League of Nations as a first attempt at a one world government. And his, um, his uh, War of the Worlds was broadcast in New York for the first time as a social engineering experiment funded by the Rockefeller Foundation in 1938, mm. just to see how people would react with the idea now of like a, a broadcast from Orson Welles, no relation. Just a fun thing to do when you have money, right? 
yeah, yeah. You know, World War One's just, uh, World War Two is just beginning, and you know, people are just listening to the news, and all of a sudden, the news is telling them that Mars Martians are killing uh, millions of of American citizens. They don't know what to take of this. So it's it's a it's a psychological experiment to see. And there's several other similar things done in Brazil and South America by the Rockefeller Foundation, always overseen by key figures from the the American Roundtable Group. That's the the Cecil Rhodes Milner Group in America under the the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Hadley Cantrell, uh, the guy who becomes the the founder and 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 controller of the Rand Corporation, um, whose name I'm I'm for, uh, uh, oof, Robert. Jeez, it'll come later. Stanton, Robert Stanton. Um, these two, Contrell and Stanton, are overseeing the Princeton Radio Research Project that is running this War of the Worlds broadcast. Uh, both of them, again, R- Stanton becomes the head of Randcore. Randcore becomes one of the conduits that uh, that manages the Cold War, that oversees the reca- basically the 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 undermining of the national institutions of America and other parts of the world for this new technic technic. A technotronic elite, as Zbigniew Brzezinski later on called it. So the um, the story of the UFOs becomes a big part of the Cold War. Um, obviously, people are seeing something um, after World War II is over. There's a lot of sites of unidentified flying objects. Um, that's definitely happening. But of course, people are are not being told so much about Project Paperclip, the Nazi and Italian uh, aerospace engineers working on flying saucer tech, that was part of the you know the aerospace project projects of of that were never finalized completely, but they came really close. And those engineers and, and aerospace engineers were all absorbed by the U.S. military industrial complex, labeled under classified. And a lot of the scientific controls were by this point really shaped by the Manhattan Project, which made secret science um, under the control of intelligence agencies and the military industrial complex, it really made this thing um, vicious, vicious, vicious. So it created a veneer of, of that veneer of secrecy that the cold war demanded created obviously a mystique in the, the zeitgeist, the public psyche that had to be then fed with narratives that would explain to people what they were seeing. Mm. And so you just have this giant burst of all sorts of um, uh, propaganda in film and cinema and books, but also in the mainstream media as well. Uh, Henry Luce, Luce, I don't know how to pronounce his name, uh, who ran Time Magazine, The Big Fascist, who worked with uh, Henry Kissinger and, and the Rockefellers. He was also uh, publicizing, starting in the, in the late 40s, material about why aliens are real and why there must be, and using... Uh, people from the Air Force who are coming on speaking as if they were all of a sudden given the green light to just speak about these foreign entities that seem to be interfacing with humans and governments. Sounds this is oddly familiar to today. Yeah, nothing that we're being shown today is at all original. It's just a recap, a, re- a rehashing of the same techniques. And uh, people were, I mean, we were, we were just attacked on every single level, spiritual, psychological, you name it, during that whole Cold War period. Um the murder of JFK, the unnecessary wars, the regime, the U.S. ran something like 230 regime change operations that killed millions of people. Many leading beautiful souls who are taking political responsibility in different countries were killed by the CIA. And Americans were so confused, distraught, fearful that they, and, and filled propaganda on every level that uh, they took it. They just, they kind of went with it, even when their own leaders were being killed by this entity. And I'm not talking about aliens. I'm talking about this, this entity that, that H.G. Wells put into motion. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, in the, in the in the documentary series, we're gonna be we we just set the tone by going back into some deep history of regarding the we want to just look at some of the 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 mystery religions and the cults of the past, how they worked geopolitically to manage wars, poli- uh, political intelligence, and other things, how that trend or rebranded itself after you know Christianity emerged onto the scene in a, in a new garb, but maintained the same type of systems of control and, and manipulation into the age of. Uh, spiritual like false spiritual synthetic cults created in the 18th 19th centuries and uh, that's going to set the tone for the next seven or eight videos that are going to be part of the series that are going to tackle hg wells a lot of the dynamics of uh the stanford research institute um the 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 um the role of a lot of the key players even today who are promoting uh, alien disclosure what are are they genuine or is there something darker behind them? We're going to address all of that. So, yeah. And and you've made the connections too between um, not just the government propaganda that we see, but also the propaganda in film. Can you dig into a little a bit of specifically, you know, talking about like Spielberg, uh, E.T., the connections between those films that my naive young young self just wanted to think, man, this brilliant guy just came up with this awesome idea about a cute little alien. But where does this stuff actually come from? Oh, that's a big that's a big one. But I I, I know we're we're limited for time. But I'll I guess I'll just say it in a you summary. Just give us a, a teaser, and then we'll uh, yeah. people will tune into okay. your work for more. Yeah. Um. Well, I guess Lucas and, and Spielberg were two guys who um, had a very big role to play. They were probably two of the most influential filmmakers of all time in terms of shaping our the, the zeitgeist the idea of what humanity is what the future is what aliens are like a lot of the things that that we take for granted um they created a space in the in the collective mind uh, of what is possible and what is probably even real is embedded in the the what's set up in things like star wars in things like et um, close encounters of the third kind, hugely influential movies. Um, I, it's important to, to take note of people like Joseph Campbell in this, in this process, Campbell being a, you know, the hero with a thousand faces. He was a very important person who worked with the Stanford research institutes project for remaking the images of man program in the 1970s that worked very closely with the Stargate project as well. Um, this is where people like Hal Puthoff, not Stargate uh, J- the movie, by the way. The actual Stargate project was, which is a thing. <laughs> That's a thing. Yeah, it was the Stanford Research Institute's remote viewing project that interfaced with the military-industrial complex and MK Ultra from the CIA and utilized a lot of psychedelic uh, drugs that had been refined under the MK Ultra program. This, this is where all this this stuff comes from. It doesn't come from like benevolent, um, you know, um, spiritualists that just want us to get better access to our inner powers and God or something or gods. Uh, it, it all comes from the military industrial complex that was looking at um, carrying out the mandate of MKUltra, which was how do we depattern human society as a whole um, using different aspects of drugs, trauma, shock, uh, neuro-linguistic programming emerged out of that as one of the the aspects of the the multifaceted so-called solution, such that a depatterned population could then be reconstructed, repatterned around a new system of programming more conducive to being um, a a happy slave class. And as Aldous Huxley described to Timothy Leary in in Timothy Leary's autobiography, um, a new scientific paganism 
would replace the Judeo-Christian values, which was always the, the drive behind the followers of Huxley, Aldous Huxley being the grandson of Thomas, of Thomas Huxley, carrying out the same family religion, you know, generations later. Um, who, so the, the, the devoted disciples of Aldous Huxley, who wanted to be the alphas in his brave new world, that's not a, a warning or just a, a fanciful trip. It, it was just like H.G. Wells' predictive programming and a bit of an open conspiracy guide to um, navigate through the management of the transition from a, a nationalist world of Judeo-Christian values to a new type of world of test tube babies and happy um, narcissistic um, hedonists that would be more conducive to being human animals under a zoo. And uh, those disciples were involved, um, I mean, were the founders of the Esalen Institute in uh, Big Sur, California. This was the, the, the sort of the, the, the incubator for a lot of the counterculture uh, social engineering project. It was the incubator for the Stanford Research Institute when it was set up as, as far as the, the remote viewing project that was part of the military industrial um, revolution that was being planned by people like Zbigniew Brzezinski, uh, Samuel P. Huntington, was to create these super soldier Jedi-like superhuman knights with a very romantic self-importance in their psyche that gave them a sense that they have superhuman powers. But that had to be justified by the veneer of some form of, of science, which was why the, uh, the quantum, the new, the new breed of quantum, um, quantum physicists who weren't really physicists, they were more mathematical probability theorists, became very useful because with mathematical probability theory, unlike the old, obsolete, outdated science of like Max Planck and Madame Curie and, and Mendeleev who actually made discoveries, those were physicists. Unlike that, but those are those now we know that we those are obsolete, old, obscure thinkers who are not able to transition to the new age where truth no longer exists because quantum mechanics somehow proved that there was no truth because you couldn't measure a photon's position and and velocity. Therefore, so, so multiverse. Any, so like <laughs> yeah, well, that's where that the multiverse is a direct consequence of imposing probability theory as the new god, the mm -hmm. god of of chaos and randomness onto um, physics. And, and, and as soon as that was done, which really came out with the Manhattan Project, that was like all of the, the old school scientists who discovered the quantum world and discovered the atom and they were all iced out. And only the new breed of, of followers of Heisenberg and, and Niels Bohr were allowed in like Oppenheimer um, or Norbert Wiener or von Neumann or mo a lot of, a lot of these, these creatures who didn't believe in truth as an article of faith, they only believed in the, the, the science of maybe of dice rolling, just like the Darwinians who only believe in the science of like, maybe of rolling of the dice on genetic mutations. Same thing for these guys. And they became the, 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 the basis for the new standard models of the atom of cosmology of big bang cosmology. All of this stuff was all enshrined. And as soon as we allowed this to be the, the only permitted lexicon around which we were allowed to navigate our understanding of the universe, well, all of a sudden, it's like, how did you account for the Big Bang? If you presume that the Big Bang existed because that's how you're reading the redshift, well, if that's the case, then you could, and you can extrapolate that to 13.7 billion years ago at some moment where everything was like this infinite point mass, where did that point mass come from? Because something can't come from nothing. Well, then either you allow for the absurdity that something just came from nothing, or you have to then say, well, maybe there are these other multiple universes around which the, this vibrating string was bouncing in and out of, and they, they just crossed it. Luckily, our, our, our one universe that then released all of the energy that currently exists, um, all at that one point mass, 13.7 billion years ago. 
And so the, the idea of multiple universes was like a fudging, an attempt to create a solution to a non-existent problem because there were other ways of solving the problem of, of Redshift than simply assuming it was all like a point mass. But regardless, by then introducing a whole set of, of assumed dimensions that are outside of the purview of human reason, thought, or analysis. You can't, you can't really do any tests to prove or disprove any of these theories. Everything just became, you, can, you could have a, a model with, with 11, with 28, with 39, with 9,000 dimensions, with infinite dimensions. It doesn't matter as long as the mathematics is internally consistent. And it can always be internally consistent because, I mean, you know, I, I could turn into a, a purple hippopotamus, grow wings and fly out my window through my wall by vibrating my particles and having the power of intention. And you can't say if you're a probability theorist that, that on some scale that that's not possible, though unlikely. So anything becomes possible. And thus you could justify why these, like at the, the Stargate project at the Stanford Research Institute, um, why super soldiers who are on psychotropic drugs uh, and, and transcendental meditation all being funded by the Lawrence Rockefeller, by the way, and the Rockefeller machinery, can't just like align their particles to run through walls and kill goats by blowing up their hearts with the power of intention and all this other stuff that becomes um, embedded in the reforms in the military itself, especially in the early 80s. So I get through, I'm getting at this in the roundabout way because I didn't forget your question on Spielberg and uh, 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 Joseph Campbell. So Joseph Campbell worked on the Stanford Research Institute and Warren Harmon's um, program for remaking on, on, on remaking the images of man. And, uh, and made a point that we need new sacred stories that take and extract the universal archetypes of the various stories of the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Christian stories, everything. Look for what's universal, um, including in, in, in native Hopi Indian stories, other things. Look for what's universal, and we need to extract whatever is universal from different religions and use that as the material around which to remake new um, sacred stories that would provide a, those big answers to the big meta questions regarding why is human other things. And uh, George Lucas, and again, Joseph Campbell's career was largely sponsored by, by Lawrence Rockefeller, the guy who was also overseeing the funding of the War of the Worlds broadcast and the conversion of the USA into an busy empire. Guys. Busy guys. Busy, busy, busy. <laughs> really, incredibly. Um, almost impressive. Um, also the same guy who ends up founding the, the Disclosure Project, recruiting one of his uh, Tavistockian um, transcendentalist meditation um, followers, Stephen Greer, to become uh, the, the spokesman for his Disclosure Project is Lawrence Rockefeller. So all that to say, Joseph Campbell is his career is bought and paid for in, in large measure by the, the Lawrence Rockefeller directly. Um, he becomes a guru in many ways. To uh, Lucas describes uh, Campbell's work as being his guiding light in shaping the 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 storyline, the structure of the world of uh, Star Wars. Which, in my view, in, in analysis, knowing what I know now, I think is a lot in common with uh, L. Ron Hubbard's cosmology in his, uh, his sacred stories that became the, the heart of the first major sci-fi cult, uh, you know, Scientology. Um, a lot, a lot in terms of galactic federations, you know, 60, 80 billion years old that are fighting with dark Sith lords and... and that um, galactic federation term comes up. I, 
everywhere. I mean, everywhere I look. We just watched a documentary uh, the other week about this like mother god cult. Wasn't that much of a cult actually. It was just a kind of a lady who lost her mind to too many psychedelics, but she was convinced she was in the Galactic Federation, and it was this whole thing. And I see the same phrase used, and then you go back and you're like, oh, Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> I mean, it's all from the same sources. Yeah, no, it's 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 re repackaged quite a bit. And I don't know about Gene Roddenberry. Maybe he's he's authentic or not. I don't know, but. Definitely, there there is um, there was an idea of creating new sacred stories that could be could could be filled in with detail later on around the concept of you know a galaxy far far away and and the idea of like they actually brought in in the military out of the Stanford Research Institute, um, which was again that project was run by a bunch of Scientologists. Uh, it wasn't just Hal Putoff who was a seventh degree OT Scientologist, um, but there was a variety of others. In Ingo Swan was a major player in this. Um, um, Jacques Vallée wasn't a Scientologist, but he was friends with a lot of Satanists, like Kenneth Anger and, and Anton LaVey. Very, very close. And, and I mean, these guys, he was also a student directly of, of J. Allen Hynek, the, the guy who was on basically managing this entire UFO mythos creation since he was, since the early days of, of Project <clears throat> Grudge and Sign and Blue Book. He was always assigned a, a role in cultivating grooming this thing working with people like carl young who was also working with alan dulles um on the question of flying saucers as a um an expression of the collective zeitgeist that could be used for a new religion he carl young even wrote a whole book on flying saucers i think that's just the last um, two minutes of your of the, all the names you put out there has been just such a good example of the more you start to dig into this stuff, uh, whether you look at it as hidden history or the occult or intelligence agencies, the more you start looking into this stuff, it's all the same names that pop up everywhere. It's the same names that pop up in intelligence. It's the same names that then pop up with occult connections. It's the same names that popped up in the UFO sort of disclosure realm. I mean, it's all the same guys. Yeah. Yeah. They, it's, a, it's a small club. <laughs> it's uh and very busy. Well, um, Matt, we'll probably dig into this just a little bit more in the smoke-filled room segment, but uh, we're going to wind down the main show. I want to make sure to let everybody know how uh, how they can best find your work in general and just let people know how they can best find your documentary uh, series here, Hidden Hand of UFOs. It's uh, I've, I've watched the first episode so far, and it's it's spectacular. It's it's very well done. Oh, cool. Thanks. Um, well, you know, the the uh, the easiest way to access the uh, that first episode um, will be to go to canadianpatriot.org. It's uh, You'll see it all over the place. Watch our videos. We've done a lot of videos. Um, my wife wrote the script for that first one. The second one's going to be out probably in about a month. You have to wait a while. I'm sorry. Um, the books that I've written, um, including the newest book that was just released two weeks ago, uh, Science Unshackled um, and the Untold History of Canada, The Clash of the Two Americas books, those are all available also on canadianpatriot.org. And uh, risingtidefoundation.net, we host lectures, study groups online um, every week. So if people want to get active, we usually ask that they um, they either get a paid upgrade, free stuff, but if you get a paid upgrade, you get, get all the invites to the, the, live, the live events. And um, um, if you can't afford it, because I know the world has kicked a lot of people in the ass, not their fault, the economy's crap. Um, if you still want to read the books or come get involved with, or get, get invites to the events, send me an email at CanadianPatriot1776 at tutanota.com. 
and uh, I'll send you the free PDFs and, and invites. Uh, that's that's okay. Well, that's a very kind offer. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're going to dig a little bit deeper here, deeper here in the smoke-filled room. Uh, in the meantime, keep up the great work. Thank you. All right, friends, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And remember, if you're listening here on the public feed, that means you're only getting about two-thirds of the conversation because every one of these interviews goes approximately 30 minutes longer in what is called the Smoke-Filled Room bonus segment. To get the complete version of every episode, just become a subscriber to The Mark Claire Show. You can do so on Patreon, on Subscribestar, on Rockfin. You can find all the links you need over at markclaire.com. That's markclaire, M-A-R-C-C-L-A-I-R.com. Until next time, my friends, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.